Good morning, One Hope. It's so good to be online again this morning. If you're joining us from outside of One Hope, it's really great to have you along with us as well. So this morning, it's my joy again to be in the pulpit, and I'm going to be preaching on living a dependent life. What does it mean to live a dependent life? Turn with me to Psalm 127. I'm going to be preaching from the psalm this morning. And while you're turning there, let me tell you about a man called Edward Mote in 1836, Edward Mote wrote a hymn that if you were following our online singing this morning, this is the hymn that we sang. And he was a carpenter who later in his life turned to pastoral work and to preaching. But he wrote this incredible hymn, My hope is built on nothing less than Jesus' blood and righteousness. I dare not trust the sweetest frame, no matter how beautiful or tempting the frame is to lean on. I dare not trust the sweetest frame, but wholly lean on Jesus' name. And then the chorus, on Christ the solid rock I stand. All other ground is sinking sand. All other ground is sinking sand. And so I want us this morning to be provoked in our thinking from the psalm, from the hymn, to think what is our sweetest frame? What is it that we rely on? Is it Christ or is it something else? Is it our, our business? Is it our family? Is it our career? Is it our ability to get the job done? It could even be something like a wound, something that we carry deep within. And we, we lean on that in our, in our difficult times. We go there like a, in a victim type mentality and we lean on a wound. And that's the thing that is our, our frame or our sustenance. What holds us secure? Later on in this hymn, he, he speaks about in every high and stormy gale, as the winds are blowing and the storm is blowing, what, what holds you secure in those moments? Is it truly God is the question I'm asking or only you can answer that question. So let's pause for thought this morning as we read Psalm 127 together. I'm going to expound it a little bit. I'm going to apply it into our lives and let's trust the Spirit to work as we read His Word this morning. I'm reading in the ESV. Unless the Lord builds the house, those who build it labor in vain. Unless the Lord watches over the city, the watchman stays awake in vain. It is in vain that you rise up early and go late to rest, eating the bread of anxious toil, for He gives to His beloved sleep. Behold, Children are a heritage from the Lord, the fruit of the womb a reward. Like arrows in the hand of a warrior are the children of one's youth. Blessed is the man who fills his quiver with them. He shall not be put to shame when he speaks with his enemies in the gate. I'd love you to stop this morning in your groups and I'd love you to pray. Someone in the group to pray. So what I'd like you to pray for. Pray for your head, your heart and your hands. Pray for your head that God would give us understanding of His Word, that He would speak to us in our minds. God speaks in our minds, but then pray that it would drop into our hearts. Pray for our hearts that we have receptive hearts and then pray for our hands that we would respond in obedience to the Word of God this morning. Now the thing I love about Psalm 127 is that it deals with three of the key preoccupations of our life, things that are that deeply concern us and we spend a lot of time and effort on these things. And so I want you to notice firstly that the psalmist 
writes firstly about what we are building. Unless the Lord builds the house and he's speaking about what we create in our lives. What do you give your time to? What does your career look like? What is it that you're building as a life for yourself? And then the second great preoccupation of humankind is not just do we want to build and we want to create, but it's how we secure or guard what it is that we have created. And so he speaks about unless the Lord watches over the city. So the thing that you've built, the house that you built, now you, you're watching over it. And he's saying unless the Lord watches over the city, the watchman stays awake in vain. And then the third thing, and it feels like a bit of a weird jump in the psalm, but it makes sense when you begin to understand what Solomon is doing as he writes this psalm, is about children or raising a family. And I think this speaks to the things that are most precious to us. And so these are three major preoccupations in our lives. What is it that our lives look like in terms of what we're building? How do we guard or secure the things that we're building? And how do we think about the things that are most precious to us? Or how do we look after the things that are most precious to us? And so much of our time, think about your normal day, your normal week, so much of our time and our thinking energy and our money and our efforts go into these three things. And they're deeply important things. What we're building is deeply important. How we look after what we're building, our legacy is deeply important. What's precious to us, deeply important. But the psalm asks a question, actually two questions, that are, that are deeper than just those three preoccupations, which he's using almost as examples in the psalm. It asks the question, what does all this amount to? Is it all vain? All this building and this watching and this raising family and is it all in vain or how do we know it's not in vain and then the second question that comes out of this psalm is to whom does the success belong if these endeavors of our hand are successful who is actually giving the growth who's actually giving the success and I think that leads us to ask questions such as if we have success how do we measure that how do we know that what we're building is not going to be in vain? How do we know that what we're watching over is not going to be in vain? And if we have success, then who should get the credit for the success? And so those are the, the questions that from this psalm immediately begin to, to bubble up to the surface as we read this psalm. And if you, if you think about our, our culture, our culture defines success in a very different way to the way that the Word of God defines success. And so... This is the age of the self-made businessman or businesswoman. You know, what we are building and guarding. And, and the success, the way that we would define success is an accumulation. It's we need more. We need a bigger company. We need more money. We need a bigger house. We need a, a fancier car. And the person who gets the credit for those things is the person themselves. The, they the hero of the story. We love a, a rags to riches narrative. The self-made star over their empire. Or if we have to think about the family component of this psalm, and you ask yourself, well, what does it mean to be a successful parent? And the world has an answer to that question. It wants to tell us about the kind of schools our kids should go to, and the kind of achievements they should have, and the kind of behavior they should have in order for us to be able to go, yes, I'm a very successful parent. And so the culture that we swim in is constantly coaching us in the answer to these two questions. What is success? How do we measure success? And if we have success, who gets the credit? And our psalm 
127 it cuts into our culture and it, it both confronts us and I think offers some relief or, or comfort to us in terms of who, who, what does all this amount to and who do we owe any genuine success. Look what it says. Unless the Lord builds the house, those who build it labor in vain. Unless the Lord watches over the city, the watchman stays awake in vain. It is in vain that you rise up early and go late to rest, eating the bread of anxious toil, for he gives to his beloved rest or sleep. I want you to notice that both of the activities that the psalmist highlights in this psalm are human activities. They're samples of our lives. He could have used other things, but he's chosen the work of creating and conserving and building and guarding. But I want you really to notice that the big take home from today is the punchline. In both of these activities, there's only two possibilities that the psalmist sees. He sees possibility one, God does it. Possibility two, it's pointless. It's in vain. And it's striking that he doesn't give a third possibility. And what's fascinating about this text is that when you read and you look at how they're trying to build and how they're trying to watch over the city, the psalmist says that it does produce something. It does produce bread of sorts. It says you eat the bread of anxious toil. And so our work, even if we're working to an earthly or a cultural standard of success, it still produces a kind of anxious bread. It still produces a house that we can watch over. But the point that the psalmist is making is that they don't lead anywhere, that they've been in vain. Yes, you might have a city that survives and you can watch over, but the city was not worth building. And so possibility one is God does it. Possibility two is that it's pointless if God doesn't do it and there is no third possibility. Now, I want you to contrast, and this is where it makes more sense, the second part about children. I want you to contrast how the psalmist is speaking about our human efforts and how if we do them without God, they're completely in vain. And now he turns to something that only God can do, the provision of a family. And he says, behold, children are a heritage from the Lord. The fruit of the womb, a reward, like arrows in the hands of a warrior, are the children of one's youth. Blessed is the man who fills his quiver with them. We've taken that verse in my family quite literally. He shall not be put to shame when he speaks with his enemies in the gate. Now this passage demonstrates an alternative to vain human efforts and human striving. And what it's saying is that God alone can produce the miraculous. Ask any couple who've struggled or who are struggling to have children and you realize very quickly that only God can do the miraculous. I remember two friends of ours in Somerset West, they'd been trying to have children for about 14 years unsuccessfully and they went for um, IVF and then the doctor, I just remember them telling us the story and it stuck in my mind. Then the doctor with all the, you know, all the, the bits and pieces in the, in the Petri dish. And the doctor said, well, we've done our bit. Now it's up to God. Now it's up to God. And so even though we bring science to bear and God's given us these incredible miracle advances, yet still we have to eventually turn and say that only God can truly do this. And this whole psalm that we're reading here, 
I think is powerfully displayed in the stories from Genesis. Genesis chapter 11 in particular is where I'm thinking. And if you look at the story of Genesis or the chapter of Genesis chapter 11, there's two, there's two halves to what's happening. And the first part of Genesis chapter 11 begins with the story of the Tower of Babel. And we know that in that time, the whole world spoke one language. And so they came together and they decided to build this tower that reached up to heaven. And God looks down in verse 6 and says, The Lord said, Behold, they are one people and they have one language. And this is only the beginning of what they will do. And nothing that they propose to do from now will be impossible for them. Come, let us go down there and confuse their language so that they may not understand one another's speech. And so this gives us a, a picture of men and women who've come together in their own strength and they're trying to do what only God can do. They're trying to be God. They're trying to build a tower to get to God. And they, they're saying, well, this is our human effort. We're building the house. We're watching over our city. It's our endeavor. It's our work. It's our strength. It's because of the cleverness of our own minds. And so at the front end of that chapter is man, 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 man. And then you go to the end of chapter 11. And this is where God is so wonderful in His miraculous ways. There's all the, the noise and the shouting and the building works of the Tower of Babel. But at the end of chapter 11, we see the true work that is going on. And it just has this, this section called Terah's Descendants. And it speaks about this random person, Terah. And he has these three sons. But one of those sons is a man called Abram, who we then see his name changed to Abraham. And it says in verse 29, And Abram and Nahor his brother took wives. The name of Abram's wife was Sarah, and the name of Nahor's wife Milkel, the daughter, etc., etc. Verse 30, Now Sariah, who becomes Sarah, was barren. She had no child. And yet in that moment, we see that what God is doing in the obscurity of some Middle Eastern place with this man, Terah, and his son, Abram, God is saying, man, you're trying to do all your plans, all your Tower of Babel. I'm busy working out a story here, a miraculous story with a, with a barren woman and her husband, Abram. And I'm about to call them and through them, all nations of the earth will be blessed. Through them, the Messiah is coming. Through them, our redemption today, those of you who follow Christ, what we hold on to comes from this quiet little corner of Genesis chapter 11 where God is doing the true building, the true watching over the world, the true caring for the world, the true miraculous producing children from the barren womb. So here's the Here's the, the key ideas from this psalm. Unless the Lord builds the house, unless the Lord watches over the city, and unless the Lord gives us children as a heritage or does the miraculous in our hearts. Now, what am I, what am I sensing this morning to communicate with us one hope? I want to ask you to stop the video in your groups and ask this question, how... As an individual or as a family, how am I measuring or how are we measuring success? How is it that we measure success? So maybe in small groups, let's throw out some ideas. Can I encourage us? Let's be vulnerable. 
Let's be honest. Let's not give the, the Christian answer. I want us to examine our hearts a little bit. And maybe the Lord just wants to stir some stuff up to the surface around the way that we are examining success. Let's be honest around our struggle to not succumb to the world's version of what success looks like. Let's do that in our small groups. Now, as we come back, I want to provoke us a little bit around the discussion that we've been having. And I want to ask you, are we being as a people thoughtful before God, asking him, Lord, what does success look like in your eyes? What does it look like to be a successful Christian in business? What does it look like to be a successful Christian in a flourishing career? What does it look like to be a successful parent? What does it look like if you're not married to be a successful single person? Surely, surely God has thoughts on these things. And surely if the gospel is true and alive and active, then surely it should make us look different to the world. It should make us look at things differently. And we ourselves as families and individuals should look different. Our lives should, the way that we plan out and, and live our careers should be strikingly different to the way that the world does. The way that we run our businesses should look different. It should be able to, from the outside, you should be able to see there's something different because we're building to a completely different pattern, a gospel pattern. And the provocation this morning is, are we just swallowing the culture? Does everything we do just look like the culture and the way that the world defines it? The second question I want to ask you this morning and I want you in your groups to stop and to again be really honest. Who is getting credit for the successes in your life? Who's getting the credit? Now, As we come back, I know that one is quite tricky. And I really want to push us away from pithy phrases where, you know, we just say, well, all glory to God. All glory to God. And as if that's now like, you know, sprinkled it in the blood of Jesus and we don't have to get underneath the hood and actually look at our motives. It's quite a difficult question to answer honestly, like who's actually getting the success here? Where's the affirmation actually going? Like what's going on with this thing as I start running a business and it succeeds and the stuff is going on in my heart and I say all glory to God, but actually back at the ranch, I, what I'm talking about here, I'm trying to get under the hood and, and ask us in our own heart, who do you truly believe is doing the work? Who do you truly believe is bringing success in whatever you're turning your, your hand to? And then let me answer the, the, the wider question is why does it matter so much? Well, it matters so much because from the beginning of creation, when we see the fall happen, we begin to have this false narrative in the world, the false story. I'm actually going to spend the next two weeks, next week and the week after that, I'm going to be preaching into the false narrative, the false story and the true story that God comes to redeem and speak over our lives. And so the false story here and why this matters is that we think, well, this is all my doing. It's all my cleverness. It's my hard work. It's my right choices. It's my ability to risk in the business world at the perfect time and open up a fresh opportunity. It's all me, me, me. And it's, that's why my business has succeeded. That's why my, my kids are high achievers. That's why my career has taken off. That's why I did so well in university. The true story 
comes out of 1 Chronicles 29, where David is speaking. And David says, but who am I and who are my people that we should be able to give as generously as this? Everything comes from you. And we have given you only what comes from your hand. We've only given you what was yours already, God. It was all yours. All good things come from your hand. And that's the true story. But can you see how different the responses would be? In the false story, we're so susceptible to arrogance. I did it. We're so susceptible to pride, to boastfulness, to selfishness. I did it, so it's mine. I'm going to hold on to it. When we have the true story spoken over us and we begin to truly believe that everything we have, every talent, every gift, every cent, every minute that we're given, all these precious resources that they truly are from God's hand, how different is our response? God, this is yours. It's easy to be generous. It's easy to give it away. God, this is yours. You gave it to me. So much easier to have humility in our hearts. Friends, not only do we need to ask these questions as individuals, we need to ask these questions as a church. One hope. What does it look like? How do we measure success as a church? How do we as a church credit glory to God for that success rather than trying to take some of the glory for ourselves? Or how do we measure success and looking over the fence at another church and going like, oh, let's be like them because they are successful. How do we settle in our hearts what God has actually purposed for us as a church and be confident and okay with what God has given us as our portion? How do we settle these things? What am I sensing to communicate to us this morning, I'm sensing that as Christ followers, we need to, as it were, check the gauges of our hearts, to look into our hearts and our minds and to see whether we are really working alongside the Lord in building the house, whatever that He's called you to build looks like. Are you working alongside the Lord? Are you living dependent upon the Lord. Now, I want to just make sure here that you're not hearing me wrong. I am not in any way, shape or form anti-wealth. I am not in any way, shape or form anti-career, good career, flourishing career, being high up in government, being high up in medicine, being high up in whatever it is, the profession that God has placed you in. I'm not anti-business. I'm not anti-hard work. I think many Christians need to learn to work much harder and to let God stretch our capacities that we can be useful to our world, useful to his kingdom, useful to his church. I'm anti. What I'm anti is doing things in our strength for our glory where God is kind of a little side bolted onto us. And actually it's almost irrespective whether we have God or not. The way that we live our life and the way that we measure success and the way that we give credit for that success. It actually is irre- irrelevant whether we have a God or not because it doesn't change how we live our lives. And so what I'm doing this morning is I'm, I'm issuing a fresh call to dependent lives. I'm asking the question. Will you build with them and how do we build with them? How do we ensure that we are not just building the house in vain, watching over what we've built in vain or trying to protect what's precious to us in vain? So what does it look like? 
I want to just give you two things as we close this morning. What does it look like to let the Lord watch over one hope? To let the Lord watch over your family? To let the Lord watch over what's precious to you? Let the Lord watch over your career or any of these other things that we could mention? The first thing is this. Dependence looks like prayerfulness. Friends, if you want to gauge or an indicator of whether you are depending on God or depending on yourself, I want to encourage you to look under the hood and to tinker with the engine around prayerfulness. Are you a prayerful man or woman? This is one of the primary places where we begin to place ourselves before God in prayer and say, Father, I need you. I need you. I need to be dependent on you. I need you to tell me what to do in this business decision. I need you to tell me what to do with my kids. I need you to guide me around which school to send my children to. I need you to guide me around how to live with wealth and not become arrogant or not become presumptuous, but rather how to give away. But I need you to guide me on how to give away. Lord, there's so many questions. There's so many things I don't understand. Thank you for prayer. Thank you for prayer. Thank you that I can commune with you and be in constant communication with you. And this is why our series on prayers was so significant for us. It was so significant to stop for seven weeks and to ask how do we pray and why should we pray and what does faith have to do with praying and can we confidently come before the Father? It's because dependence looks like prayerfulness. The second thing is this. Dependence looks like relationship. Dependence looks like relationships. Here's some dependent words for you. Faith. When we have faith in something, it means we depend on them or we depend on it. And so if we have faith in God, we are depending on God. Here's another one. Trust. I trust you. I trust you. I depend on you. I depend on your word. When you say that this is what you're going to do, then I trust you. God, when you say in your word that this is the promise that I can hold on to, I'm going to trust you and I'm going to hold on to that word. Reliance. All of these are, are dependence words. But I want you to notice how deeply relational those words are. You can't rely on someone that you don't trust. You can't trust someone that you don't have a relationship with. You can't put your faith in somebody that you don't have a relationship with. And so all of our learning to walk with God and to make sure that what we're building or creating and the way that we're guarding that and the miraculous gifts, the children and the families and the other, that's just a metaphor for God's work, His miraculous work, that all of those things, that we're not doing all of those things in vain, the way that we do that is to say, Father... I want to know you. That's where our dependence comes from. That's where our faith and our trust comes from, is this relationship. Let me just put it into very practical, a very practical example. I want you to think about someone who you've seen that is genuinely, prayerfully and relationally connected to Christ. The kind of person that I, I would speak about my gran when I think about somebody like this. There's, there's people in our congregation like this who are prayerful and relationally connected with the Father. They take time. You know, whenever I think of these people and the work that they do, 
the way that they speak about people, the way that they go about their careers, the generosity of, of heart, the generosity of finance, the, the way that they live their lives, I would never be able to describe that as they have worked in vain. These prayerful, trusting, dependent people would never be able to say over their lives they've worked in vain. And so this is how we work for God in a way that is dependent and in a way that God Himself builds the house with us, watches over the city with us, pours out His miraculous blessings over us. Let me ask you this morning, are you prayerful? Let me ask you this morning, are you in relationship with God? We started this morning with the words from that beautiful hymn. My hope is built on nothing less than Jesus' blood and righteousness. I dare not trust the sweetest frame, but I wholly lean. I put all my weight on Jesus' name. On Christ the solid rock I stand, all other ground is sinking sand. All other ground is sinking sand. Now, I found the last words, the deathbed words of the same man who wrote that hymn, Edward Mote. Here's his last words. In, in his 77th year, as he lay on his bed dying, he said, I think I am going to heaven. Yes, I am nearing port. The truths I have preached, I am now living upon, and they will do to die upon. Ah, the precious blood which takes away all our sins. It is this which makes peace with God. Friends, this morning I pray that the Spirit of God would provoke in our hearts a response to this text, the Psalm, 120, the Psalm 127. He would provoke in our hearts a response to be freshly dependent on Him, freshly prayerful, freshly auditing our relationship with Him. We're going to close our groups this morning. Can I ask you to be prayerful in your groups, spend some time, just five or ten minutes in your groups. Could I encourage you to spend time praying for one another? Just lifting one another up, asking for specific needs, asking for things that the sermon has pulled out of our hearts already or evoked in our emotions or out of our hearts this morning. And then we're going to take communion in our groups together. God bless you. We see you next week. Don't forget it's our gathered Sunday. We're coming together in Middle Flay. It's going to be absolutely beautiful. Please don't miss it. Please don't stay at home. Please come and join us. It's going to be wonderful to be the gathered body of Christ in one big place all together for one Sunday this month of April. See you there.